I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. I bet you know that we're still in John because we've got to finish this uh, Bread of Life discourse up. And so we are in John 6, verses 56, excuse me, through 69. And so I'm going to have Alan kind of put us back to where we were last week and so we can move forward and finish this up. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I I don't know about you, Christy, but for me, I'm I'm kind of glad that we finally reached the conclusion of our five-week journey through John chapter 6. I'm I'm kind of ready to move on. I am too. And if you all have jumped in to read it, you'll be like, gosh, it's kind of repetitive. I've kind of heard this already. And so I think it's one of the big challenges of today. Well, the good news is next week we go back to Mark and we stay in Mark through the rest of the year. There we go. There we go. But I think that you know, I do think the repetition that John gives us here really is to emphasize how important this sure, is. So, sure, so sure. let's go ahead and find out what these last pieces are. Well, and given that, I, you know, I, I wanted to kind of just set the stage again. As we've mm-hmm. seen before, the feeding of the 5,000 prepares us for Jesus' insistence that he is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in the Bread of Life discourse proper, Jesus uses bread as an analogy for eternal life and identifies himself as the bread that gives eternal life. Uh, Throughout the chapter, we've seen there are sacramental images, but the primary emphasis is on the response of faith that enables one to experience eternal life. But in last week's installment, we saw that there was a surprising shift in perspective where Jesus called the crowd to eat my flesh and drink my blood, something that astonished and offended them. And as we saw last week, it's likely that we're dealing with the Johannine version of Jesus' words of institution for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Apparently, the authors or editors of the gospel wanted to connect the sacrament with the bread of life discourse, perhaps as an interpretive clue to both. And so, again, that just kind of gives the overview of this whole chapter. Right, right. And, and the lectionary passage for today backs up a few verses to set the stage. And we begin with Jesus' statement that those who eat my flesh mm-hmm. and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. That's John six fifty six. Mm-hmm. Now, as we discussed last week, although this language could imply that it is participating in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that conveys eternal life, I don't think that's the point here. I think we're meant to see this statement as a reflection of the kind of faith relationship that John's gospel holds up an example. And I think it's important here that that this eating my flesh and drinking my blood and abiding in me mm-hmm. are, are put together here because we've already seen this notion of what it means to abide in Christ in John 15 when we were when we were looking at that in Easter in the Eastertide. Um, it, I think it's important to recognize that you know, believing in Jesus in John's gospel is about more than just giving assent to his claims about himself. It's also about entering this relationship that can be called abiding in him, Mm -hmm. which as we saw in John 15 is a relationship that emulates Jesus' own obedience to the Father, as well as follows his example in laying down one's life for others in love. And so I think it's interesting that we have this, we have the, the language from this chapter of, of the bread of life and eating mm. my flesh and drinking my blood. And it's connected with abiding Abide. mm-hmm. because that's language we see elsewhere in John's gospel. It's yeah. very important for what faith means in John's yeah, gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so let's dig a little more. You know, one of the things um, that this is all rallying around is this idea of life. And so mm-hmm. what does Jesus mean by life? Well, uh, you know, I think as we said, as we've seen before in John's gospel, life is a very important word group in John's gospel. Mm -hmm. Eternal life seems to be the whole focus of John's gospel as opposed to in the synoptics where it's the kingdom of God. And it, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in my thought world, or my, in my approach to the gospel, I tend to interpret that as, um, you know, John's gospel is sort of rewording what the meaning of the kingdom of God is for an audience that may or may not be able mm-hmm. to comprehend the, the Hebrew Bible background of, of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here, in, in then in verse 57, then Jesus makes a very interesting connection about life. He says that he makes a connection between the life of the Father, his own life, and mm-hmm. the life he will give to those who respond to him. He says, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of him. Mm-hmm. And he begins with a fairly commonplace statement. The Father is the living one. 
uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the right. fact that God is the living God, that's fairly common in the Bible. Right. Uh, right. But I think the interesting part here is that Jesus says that he lives because of the Father. And I think that's an unusual statement. You know, Jesus can talk about this elsewhere in, in John chapter 5. He says, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wishes. So there's this, there, there is this connection in John's gospel between the life of the Father and the life that Jesus is able to give. But here he says, I live because of the Father. And I think there's something else going on here because I think he's connecting the statement that he lives because of the Father with the statement that whoever eats me will live because of me. And I didn't find this corroborated much, but in my mind, if we go with the interpretation that we are dealing with Jesus' words of institution for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper here, eat my flesh Mm -hmm. and drink my blood, um, that we could perhaps see these words as a declaration of the risen and living Christ post-resurrection at the observance of the sacrament, that he lives because of the Father. Or perhaps we might translate it as as J.B. Phillips did, I am alive because of the Father. Mm-hmm. That seems to bring out the idea of, of this is the resurrected Christ speaking in, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, mm. in the words of institution, uh, more so than perhaps just saying, I live because of the Father. So I think we might oh, translate yeah, it, I am yeah. alive because of the Father. And, and so if we put it in that setting of the, of the sacrament, then we have, we have the risen Christ speaking through the words of institution, you know, I am alive because of the Father, and therefore I, can, I will give life to those of you who come to me. And um, so um, as a result, I think, I, I think we have this, this interesting connection of, of life. And to me, it, uh, you know, I don't know that, it, uh, well, in the, in the commentators I looked at, I didn't see anybody else taking this line of thought. I think everybody else saw this as Jesus having life in himself and just giving, you know, uh-huh. dispensing that right, to others. Right. But it's the language of I live because of the Father. Mm-hmm. That that's not that that's like you don't find that language in the New Testament. That's a unique phrase, I think. I believe it's only found here in the New Testament. Interesting. And and that's why I'm thinking maybe we should see something else going on here. Mm. Now, one of the things that some commentators will point out is that the unique nature of Jesus' sayings about himself in the Gospel of John may reflect a post-resurrection setting, mm. that it is the, it is the risen uh, and, and living Christ who is speaking through the Johannine so, Jesus. So your interpretation would be consistent with that. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm thinking here, is that this, we, here we have an example of this, that this is, this is a saying of the risen and living Christ um, that is sort of connected with the sacrament. And the idea is that Jesus is speaking through, through the words of institution at the sacrament, offering life to those who will come to him. Yeah, yeah. wow. Um, I, I think that's brilliant and uh, a very, um, I think it's one of, those, one of those important pieces that where Alan's using you know, his experiences are just kind of popping off of what others have, have, have necessarily argued. And I, but I, I think well, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to see you know, the, the, the language because right. of the Father is very unusual. I'm yeah. also trying to see this concept of life in the context of John's gospel. You know, in John 5, 26, just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son right. also to have life in himself. And again, that could be simply a statement about Jesus in his earthly ministry. But I think in, 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 the, in the context in which people would be hearing this gospel and, and people would be, would be interacting with this gospel, Jesus, this was long after the resurrection. Right, and right. so I think there would be some sense in which people would see that that the living and resurrected Christ is speaking oh, to them. I, I think you're right, I, and I agree. And and this is you know kind of going off on a tangent, but as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about John's audience. John's audience are people that are already Christians. They are they are already familiar with with at least early liturgy, and 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 they're certainly familiar with the practice of the Lord's Supper by this point in time. So. Um, this totally makes sense within the context of that audience, I think. In fact, I think it makes more sense sure. than to try to place it back. I think we try to um, devolve well, this gospel, if you will, and put it back 
Assuming it's written at the same time. I mean, I think we do that when we read it, when we have to remember this is written later. Our, our notions mm-hmm. of a gospel being a biography intrude here, I think. Mm-hmm. We want I it agree. to be a biography about the, the, the life of the historical Jesus. And, and, you know, I think we can know a lot about the historical Jesus from our gospels. But I don't think that prevents us from recognizing that the gospels were all written in a post-resurrection setting. And that in, in that setting, in the Christian church, there was not, there was not this sort of um, idea that, well, this is something that Jesus said historically, and this is something yeah. that the risen Christ yeah, yeah, said. Yeah, right. There was not that dichotomy. It is the one, it is exactly. one and the same Christ exactly. who is speaking in both voices. Exactly. And, and they did not perceive there to be a, a dichotomy between those, as right. we would perhaps from our modern point of view impose upon that. Right, right. Yeah. So, no, I think that's, I think that's really, really good. Um, and and I think I think it's a really important a really important contribution to the scholarship that he has just offered us. So thank you. Um, so, but we need to keep moving on. Sure. So here we go. Um, and so now we're, we're kind of hitting the conclusion of the story. Yeah. So Jesus concludes his bread of life discourse finally in verse fifty eight by declaring that this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. And notice here we have the bread language coming back in. It's the language from the bread of life discourse coming back in. It's not Jesus' flesh that they are eating, but rather the bread of life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they are eating. And um, and Jesus declares that those who eat the bread of life will live forever. And, and again, I think it's important for us to recognize that while in John's gospel, eternal life does refer to life that endures eternally, and at times specifically refers to being raised up at the last day. It also refers to this quality of life that we've already seen uh, as described by the idea of abiding in Christ here and now. And, and it's, 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 so it's not just about life that lasts, you know, eternally. It's about a quality of life that you have now yeah, yeah. in relationship with Christ. It's, a, it's a, a special kind of life that can be described as abiding in Christ. And it, all of the things that we've seen that apply to that concept of abiding in Christ in John's gospel apply I, to that. As you're saying, and I know I'm pulling in from other gospels, but it seems to my brain easier to wrap my brain around kingdom of God mm-hmm. language there. Well, it is more, it is, it is easier to see the kingdom of God as a present reality. Yeah, yeah. And yet at the same time, some people cha- are challenged in that because the, the, the notions of peace and justice and freedom that are associated with the, pe- the kingdom of God in the Bible, you don't see them fully realized true, in this world, true. right? And yeah, so yeah. I think it depends on one's perspective. You oh, know, yeah, for some yeah. people, eternal life speaks more to them, yeah. and, and that's okay. I think that as long as they recognize it's not just about, well, I'm going to live forever in some right. eternal uh, heavenly realm. Uh, it's about how you live right now yeah. and it makes a, it makes a difference in how you live right now. Right. Okay. Very good. Well, let's keep going. Um so the disciples um the disciples come into play here. The disciples Yes. Are yes. What yeah, and and this is sort of the conclusion of the whole chapter interestingly. Mm. After the debate with the Jewish leaders about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus now turns to his own disciples and John's gospel tells us that many of his disciples were complaining about what Jesus had said. The New RSV says this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? Literally, it's this saying is hard or harsh. Who can hear it? Um, Now, I find it interesting that throughout the gospel tradition, including both the synoptics and John, the word disciples or mathetai Mm -hmm. is virtually synonymous with the twelve. In most cases, now you know we learn, for example, in Acts one fifteen that there are apparent that there were other followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, Acts uh, one fifteen mentions one hundred and twenty gathered in the upper room, and of course we have seen the sort of the ob- women, the, the women. sort of uh, <laughs> oblique references to the women who 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 they're mentioned almost as an aside, but we don't really have much information in the gospel tradition to prepare us for the idea that Jesus had many disciples yeah. that were following him other than the 12. And and so that seems a, bit, a bit surprising I think at this point. Right. There were many there were, of his yeah, disciples exactly, exactly. that were that were that were apparently offended by by what Jesus was saying right. in this discourse. 
And so then how does he respond? Well, interestingly, he seems to provoke the conflict uh, no. by, by simply asking, <laughs> not only does this offend you, but then he challenges them, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And, you know, this reminds us of what Jesus said in his interview with Nicodemus, right, that right. no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So apparently, it was not just the idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood that yes. was a problem for Jesus' own disciples, but apparently it was the idea that Jesus really came from heaven rather than Nazareth yes. that was a point that was still difficult for even some of those who followed him to grasp. And again, I'm pulling in some of the context of John's gospel here because um, the matter of where Jesus right. comes from is debated several times in John's gospel. You will be excited to know that one of our uh, one of our reformers picked up on that. Oh, yeah. So, cool. yeah, cool. something we cool. can talk about in a little bit. But, yeah, it, uh, it, it, that is definitely present in, in this gospel. Sure, right? sure. So... Okay, so one of the, the big things then that, that he's dealing with with his disciples is this kind of spirit, like we talked about, this, this spiritual presence, and then this kind of visceral, real... Mm, um, so flesh. I, I, the flesh, <laughs> right. right? So um, talk more about this. How, how does he respond? Well, to and I, I, think, I think in verse 63, Jesus gives his own disciples an explanation that could potentially resolve the conflict about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He says very pointedly, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. useless. And, and, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, that this, this kind of, this word flesh harkens back to some things in John chapter 3, you know, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is mm -hmm. spirit. You can only be born from above by the Spirit, not by the flesh. So there's some general ideas about the flesh that are behind this, but also I, I don't think we can read this statement without seeing uh, it as a, as a commentary on what Jesus has said about eating his flesh and drinking I, his I blood. I agree, I agree. And, and although some some New Testament scholars will 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 dispute that, I, I just, I mean, I think if we're going to read the gospel in its current form, then then the, the, there is an intentional juxtaposition there. And, and the idea is, in the final form of the gospel, is that Jesus is saying, it is not about literally eating right. my literal flesh. Uh, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit, spirit and, life. and life. And so I think this returns to the idea that we see we saw earlier on in the chapter, that the point of all the language about eating the bread of life and even about eating his flesh was about responding to Jesus with faith mm -hmm. to the extent that they not only acknowledge him as the one who has come from God, they also embrace his words mm -hmm. and they abide in him. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, when I, when I think about this practically, I mean, there's, I think there's this sense of using words that we can identify with. We know that when we are hungry, we have to eat. We know what it is like to feel to feel the pangs of hunger, and we know what food feels like when we mm -hmm. eat it. Mm -hmm. And I think he's just using that as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And my reformers say, this is really obvious. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting that so many don't find it obvious, and even clearly those listening didn't see it as obvious. So he's really right. hitting home. Right. And I'm thinking about John, John's audience here, why in particular John is making sure that it's actually clear what happens. Yes, so, yes. Um, Well, and again, I, I think it's important to remember that, that, John, that Raymond Brown pointed out that perhaps we're dealing with a very primitive form of the words of institution. This is my yes, basar, true. which perhaps in Aramaic or Hebrew would have meant either flesh or body. Right. And in John's gospel, the translation is sarx, flesh. In the synoptic gospels, the translation is soma, body. Body. Which mm -hmm. takes away that sort of almost literal, crude, offensive nature of mm -hmm. we're supposed to actually, you know, eat your flesh, you know, uh, this is my body, then has that more symbolic um, right, notion that, that right. you know, and in fact, in I believe I forget which one of the which one of the synoptics actually adds. This is my body, which is broken for you. You know, right? So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's you know, I think we're dealing a little bit here with the problem of of translating basar into sarks in John's gospel, and um, just the literalness of right. the way John handles that, and yet. You know, in, in, when you put it in connection with the bread of life discourse, right. we see that it's not about eating flesh. It's about right. how you respond to Jesus. Right. Interesting. Well, it, that poses something we might want to add, talk about later. But um, let's keep moving on through yeah. this now. Um, 
So what? Keep moving on with how Jesus is keeps yeah. teaching this. Well, he kind of keeps the pressure up a bit because he follows up on that by bluntly stating that among you there are some who do not believe. John's gospel explains that Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And so this sort of serves as the explanation for the idea that Jesus mentioned several times in John's gospel that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So you have this idea, you know, that only God can enable you to come to come to Christ and in faith. And, and, and so because of that, then Jesus apparently has perhaps supernatural knowledge of those who truly are, are coming to him in faith and those who are not. And, we're, and as we saw when we dealt with the, uh, the uh, farewell discourses in John's gospel during the season of Easter, mm-hmm. you know, at that point in time, he's addressing very likely just the inner circle of his disciples, the ones who truly are the ones mm-hmm. who have faith. Mm-hmm. At this point, he's, he's addressing people, a broader audience. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting... Um, that Jesus responds to it this way. Now, you know, one of the one of the interesting correlations with the synoptics is that in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, "All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him." Right. So you have a kind of a Johannine resonance there uh, yeah. in the synoptic. Yeah, gospels. you do. Yeah. You do well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, you know. I think that makes sense, mm-hmm. actually. Right, when, that there would be correlations. Yeah, yes, absolutely, yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that there are correlations between the Synoptic Gospels and the right. Johannine Gospel. It only makes sense that there would be correlations between John's Gospel and the Synoptic Gospels, and we would see those reflections in the Synoptic yeah. Gospels as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So let's move so, on. Well, at yeah. this point, then, the, the Gospel simply says, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Exactly. And, yeah. and yeah. so this is sort of the... This is sort of the conclusion of this whole chapter that right. began with the feeding miracle and, the, and, and continued with the walking on the water where Jesus revealed right. himself right. as the I am and, and you know, continued with his, his bread of life discourse and then with his, with his words of institution, eating my flesh and, and mm-hmm. drinking my blood. And then finally, they just simply, you know, many of it's them simply, turned back. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. It. It's the only place in the gospel tradition that I'm aware of where we talk, where we, where we hear of disciples mm-hmm. turning back. Turning back. Because there are plenty of places in the synoptic gospels where the crowds right. reject him or where he's right. rejected but, at Nazareth or the Jewish leaders reject him. But this is the only place, to my knowledge, in the, in the gospel mm-hmm. tradition where we hear of disciples mm-hmm. turning back, which well, I think is interesting. I do, and I think that's a huge piece of... You know, when I think about sermon for this, mm-hmm. I'm th- thinking that's really an, maybe an important piece because so many are willing to go so far mm-hmm. and then they hear it and they turn back because mm-hmm. whatever disbelief or misunderstanding of uh, of really who Jesus is or who knows leads to that turning back. I think, I think part of it is also so many are willing to only go so far. And if you go beyond that in your preaching and teaching, they just kind of, yeah, they just yeah. kind of glaze over. They just kind of don't, they just, they just say, well, I've never heard that before. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to so, go there. So yeah. very, very interesting. Okay. So now Peter, what, how does Peter respond? Well, Jesus to turns to the 12. Right. Uh, actually yeah, oh, says. I jumped ahead. And it's oh, interesting. I jumped ahead. Sorry, everybody. No, okay. He goes to the 12 first. Yeah, Jesus yes, turns to the 12. And, giving and, it away. <laughs> which, which was interesting because here you have a distinction between the, the broader disciples and the 12, which is, again, the only place that I'm aware of this in the, in the gospel tradition. Uh, yes, that, that is a good distinction. And, and if you didn't hear that, the broader disciples... And then the next thing specifically says the 12. So that's, right. I think that's kind right. of a big deal. Actually. So he turns to the 12 and asks, do you also wish to go away? And it is Peter who makes the first of what will turn out to be several confessions of faith in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Martha, I believe, um, makes a confession in 1127. And of course, uh, Thomas makes a confession in 2028. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I think this shouldn't come as a surprise to us since really the, the, the big confession of who Jesus is in the synoptic gospels is on the lips of Peter as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, Peter answers, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 
You know, when you think about Peter in the Synoptic Gospels, it seems like this is almost beyond. It, it his, does because his, he's his his ability to he's comprehend. Kinda, he's kind of one of the stupid disciples that we talk about. Sorry, no, but but, well, but, but my I kids to talk about. You know, they they talk about. They, he just doesn't quite get it, and and, and none of them do to right. this extent in in right. the, in the Synoptic Gospels. So, you know, as we've said before. In the Synoptic Gospels, there's kind of a development of Jesus knowing what his purpose is. And right. so it's midway into the story that we have the statement that the Son of Man is going to going to right. die. You right. know? But in, in John's Gospel, you know, John, Jesus begins from right. the very beginning. He has this notion of where he's going. He right. knows where he's going. He knows what he's about. There's no ambiguity. It's, it's, you know, it's clear in his mind. And similarly, you have this kind of reflection of the, of the disciples. They, they get him better than anybody else from the very beginning. Right. You don't right. have a lot of the kind of... You you don't have a lot of the kind of um, you, you don't have a reflection of sort of the denseness of the of the apostles the the, the twelve right. that we saw in Mark's yeah, gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 do seem to be on board the whole time. So mm-hmm. Peter, I think, is the one who is 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 given the uh, opportunity, whether historically or or by the authors and editors of the Gospel of John, to make this confession of faith. And, and, you know, um, it would seem that the 12 and Peter in Peter's confession have understood the message of the bread of life discourse and the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, that it is faith in Jesus and in his message that gives life. Uh, more than that, he confesses that Jesus is the Holy One of God, which was one way of saying the Messiah. Right. And in fact, um, Tertullian quotes this verse as saying, you are the Christ. And at least one early manuscript in some versions read, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. And the major, the majority of manuscripts have, you are the Christ, the Son, Son of the living, living God, God, which is probably due to the influence of Matthew 16. That's mm-hmm. word for word the oh, same sure. confession that Peter yeah. makes in the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and we know that scribes were sometimes keen to harmonize one Absolutely. gospel to another mm-hmm. one. But it, it seems that the Holy One of God is probably the best reading here because it's it's saying the same thing as any all the rest of them. It's just not as it's not as um, specific, perhaps. Right, right. What do you know off the top of your head? What's in the um, um, New Revised Standard Version? It's the Holy One of That's God. That's what I yeah. thought. Yeah, I was pretty that. sure yeah. I read oh, that, yeah. but I was mm-hmm. just I was just checking. Yeah. And I think most of the translations, most of the current translations, go use with that. that. Use yeah. that one, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, despite Peter's confession, however, Jesus reiterates the point he's already made. Did I not choose you, the twelve? Let yet one of you is a devil. And I think it's interesting that here he uses the concept of a devil for Judas, whereas it is Peter who is the one who gets the rebuke, "Get behind me, Satan!" Satan. In, yeah. In, yeah. in the synoptic tradition. Um, but you know, this recalls the fact that was mentioned earlier that Jesus knew from the first, who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. Right. And of course the chapter concludes with the indication that Jesus was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot and specifies that Judas was going to betray Jesus, even though he was one of the 12. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, um, then then we move. How does it wrap? Up? Literally, we just wrap up at the end here. Well, and and so th- this this section seems to wrap up the whole of John six, and we've been through a lot of territory. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus feeds the multitude. Right. Jesus walks on water and and says to his disciples, "I am." You know, mm-hmm. which is a self revelation of himself. Right. Um, Jesus. Uh, is the one who gives the people the true bread from heaven, the bread that gives eternal life. Right. This is not actual food. It's not something you can serve up on a plate, but rather it is his own life that he will give for the life of the world. The chapter proceeds to interpret this idea of Jesus as the bread of life by conjoining what I would see as a version of Jesus' words of institution of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. The hardness of or the difficulty of this language may very well be due to the primitive nature of the words, as I mentioned before, this is my flesh and this is my blood. But in our lesson for today, we come back around to where we began, to the same theme that I think runs throughout John's gospel. Mm-hmm. All of this has been an extended analogy. And again, I think this is an analogy. It is meant to be understood metaphorically. 
for the call to respond to Jesus in faith, that he truly is the one who has come from God, that he truly does have the words of eternal life, and that they, that they, along with his being lifted up and as well as the gift of the Spirit, truly constitute the basis for having eternal life, which means not only being raised up at the last day and having uh, life that, that, that lasts eternally, but also to abide in him in a relationship. So what we have here then is Jesus coming from heaven, his incarnation, Jesus' words that he gives to them, Jesus' life that he offers to them, and his gift of the Spirit. All of those elements are seen as Mm life-giving, and they're all kind of held together in this one chapter, mm-hmm, <laughs> which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have, you have really kind of a phenomenal Christology in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, that's intentional. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think it's very intentional. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's long and carefully crafted and even restated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we've been through a lot of territory and, and it's been a, a bit of a tedious um, um, a journey through it. But I think at the end of the day, we, what we see is, you know, Jesus is the one who is able to feed the multitudes. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the one who is the I am. Jesus is the one who is the bread that has come from heaven. Jesus is the one who gives life through his words, through his death, through his resurrection. Jesus is the one who gives the spirit. These are all life-giving aspects of yes, what God is yes, doing. Yes, yes, yes. And that is a perfect place to stop because I can jump in on that with something a reformer said. Great. Thanks. Yep. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy take a turn, uh, leading us through what the Reformers had to say about this passage. So please take it away, Christy. Well, so I'm not going to start in the order I planned because we we left off with a little bit of a teaser about giving life. And I think it was interesting because I believe it was Wolfgang Musculus, and I might might be wrong, so I apologize if I am, um, who made this quite detailed piece about how God gives life and not death. And he goes into quite some detail um, about this, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And he said, "Well, what if you know God were the were were the cause of death, and what if the purpose of God was death?" And he goes, "That's that's inconsistent with who God is." Absolutely. And so it was just a really, really interesting dialogue, uh, theological yeah. development he made there, thinking about in terms of what is God, and therefore what is um, this whole this whole process, Eucharistic language, and how is it life-giving? And so when Alan said that, I, my mind went immediately to that part that I read about, yeah, what what God is not. And mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting piece. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, in, in the prophets, the idols are dead. Yeah. They are lifeless. Yes. Whereas God is the living one and therefore is able to give life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I've never really thought about it that way. Of, is God the one who gives life, or God the one who gives death? Yeah. And throughout the Bible, God is the one who gives, gives life. Gives life. So, and for me, reading that was kind of a big, yeah. Wow, and then when yeah. Alan said this, I'm like, yeah. I mean, talk about something um, that's that's huge. It's a fundamental theology of who God is. You know, those that fundamental belief system that is ours, yes. and it's while well, it's laced there. I, I don't know that we always think about it in these, these terms. So mm-hmm. I loved that. So anyway, I kind of jumped off. Um, otherwise, I do want to head back to um, kind of the Reformers in general. Now, when you read, when you read the Reformers, it's if, if, if indeed you're listening and you are Protestant, it's kind of like, yeah, that's what I expect them to say. This is indeed Protestant sure. theology. But I want to push back on that because... This for them was revolutionary mm-hmm. compared to what the Roman Catholic Church did. They were they were in the minority. Exactly. They are pushing back against years and years and centuries. years of and centuries of transubstantiation and that this very physical that you have to be 
that you have to not only take the physical you know bread and 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 wine but that you have to um but that you have to do it all the time that mm-hmm. it in itself has a saving element and so you always you always had to take it because that's what gave you life and so they were pushing back against that theology so this comes out as being fresh and new and um and, and, and argued over and over and over by many in many different ways. Well, it was earth-shattering, earth-shaking, and groundbreaking in that time. Yes, yeah. yes. So, as we know, they come at it with slightly different versions of what happens, and I think that's of how it works. I think what's interesting here is one of the things we've been having. To what extent is this language of the Eucharist, or to what extent is it not? And they really varied. It kind of went to the spectrum. Some said yes, like we've talked about. John doesn't talk about the Lord's Supper elsewhere. It is being placed here. And others said no uh, for a variety of reasons that um, that this wasn't specifically um, written for the Lord's Supper, but is is looking forward to it later. So I I think that's interesting. Um and, well, and I would think, you know, their, their approach to the Gospels uh, would be similar to the one that maybe the typical Bible reader today would take as, as right. sort of a biography. Yeah. And so they're thinking of it historically. And how, how does it make any sense that, that you've got, you've got the, you know, the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper all of a sudden, in, you know, uh, just put in, in the midst of, of, of Jesus feeding the 5,000? You know, right. it, it seems to be... Too early in this in the in the gospel. Story, exactly, you know. exactly. Sort of trying to figure out how you know how John is doing this, and I think. The, and uh, I don't. I don't know that they even. I'm not sure they were that too many of them were aware that some of the gospel writers had a tendency to, to organize some of their material thematically, as opposed to chronologically. Right, and I think that's because well. You see this emerging, right? You see that the different types of, of questions being asked of the Gospels really emerging with these folks. And there are some that, that, that were pushing that and starting to think. Martin Bootser, in particular, was really, really trying to look outside of the box and saying, mm. look, we've got to look at this broad passage. And shame on these people for pulling out this, this little bitty piece mm-hmm. um, and, and being so literal with sure. the flesh. So it doesn't sure. make sense. In fact, Bootser comes out. And um, says, look, this whole thing that we're talking about with, with flesh, they're missing the point. And he's like, he said, this is all about Jesus coming down from heaven. And that right. was the offensive piece to them. It that, was. Yeah. yeah. That was and in his, in his view, that the Jews actually saw, the, saw this as figural language the whole time and that they would have seen it that way. Mm. The offense was the coming down, the, yeah. the, the, the claim that the Son of God. Well, and as I mentioned, you know, that was something that was debated throughout John's gospel. This, this is, comes up mm-hmm. several times, and so good for Musculus because he's, he's drawing that no, in. No, that's Bootser. That's Bootser. I mean, sorry, that's Bootser. Yeah. yeah, good for Bootser because he's drawing that in, and I think that's important. You yeah, know? yeah. So I think that's a, a, a more, almost a more progressive read of it. But they recognize that in the Roman Catholic tradition, this language is pulled apart and set is, as... It's kind of an affirmation of the transubstantiation. So they, they do attack it a lot here, saying, but they're, they aren't getting it. So, and they're recognizing that it does have, in some way, shape, or form, implications for Lord's Supper later on. Mm-hmm. That there's, there's this relationship between talking about, about the bread and then the bread that's used later. Mm-hmm. So, um, or, you know, depending on how, you, how, how, it's, how it's viewed. So very interesting. Um, Calvin, um, Calvin, in particular, no surprise, he recognizes this figu- figurative language, there's no doubt, and um, he, he really is talking about how Christ no- refers to himself as living bread instead of bread of life. And I thought that was a really subtle little piece mm. he picked up in there, mm-hmm. but it picked up on that life thing again, and, mm-hmm. and while I was processing this um not just life giving but like there's an action in living that reflects the action of eating Mm -hmm. so it's in the same kind of the same categories of what we've been talking about but Mm -hmm. that is it's it's even more um, so the response to jesus is an active one yes yes exactly passive acknowledgement which fits with of course calvin's theology very well um and uh, yeah, eat in reference to faith as an action. Yeah. Um, and but he offers that many people are offered the bread, but they do not enjoy it. 
um, and it does not feed them because they are not hungry. In other words, you have to have faith to benefit from the bread. And when I saw your notes, I chuckled about this because, of course, Calvin would say that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so funny. I I had the same experience because um, many of us still kind of push Calvin aside, that we've moved so far beyond Calvin and our Reformed theology. And then he says this stuff that Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, yeah, of course he said that. Mm -hmm. However, okay. But, I mean, uh, you know, and of course, you know, that, that... leads to the line of argumentation that only those who um, are saved should participate Absolutely. in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And I don't agree with I that. I don't because, either. Because I think it's I think it is a I think it is a great presentation of the gospel and a great opportunity to invite people to come I to do faith. Too. But uh, I, I think I think I think he's right. I mean basically that, you know, people who just show up uh, for a sacrament and say, well, I'm here because I'm obliged to, and and taking the sacrament gives me gives me my dose of grace for this yeah. week. And there's no real faith involved. Exactly. There's no real commitment of life. There's no abiding in Christ. Exactly. There. You know, exactly. It's, that's that's yeah. I would agree with him that that's not what it's about. Right. So this is funny. This is a funny thing that Calvin did. Now, so he brings up in the in the midst of all this this Greek demigod tantalus so tantalus <laughs> tantalus is cursed for life um unable to reach the food and or drink the water because he tried to serve his son up on a platter to feed zeus he's mm. a son of zeus okay so this is <laughs> this is where our word tantalizing comes from mm. right mm. but i was laughing to put this because he says it's kind of like tantalus it's like they they are reaching they're reaching, but they don't know. It's it's folly unless they unless they believe. Well, in other words, they, they can't really have their hunger truly satisfied. Exactly, without exactly. Faith. Yeah. So I just yeah. thought that was a really. Mm. It seems off the wall, but it reminds you to the extent that these these humanists are steeped in in not only the 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 biblical sure. studies, but also classical. in this classical yeah, traditions. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just it kind of it caught me off guard. I didn't expect to find that in the commentary, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes them fun to read. Sure. Um, and then um, he also dives into the fullness of this. Of this, that this feeding discourse can't be separated from who Christ is in atoning for our sins, which we've already talked about today. So, for example, there might be a tendency to see that we can't um, um, that we can't gain life from Christ, Jesus' flesh; it's incomprehensible. And yet, when we remember that Jesus died for our salvation, the idea of flesh takes on a deeper meaning within the context of that spiritual. Well, God. and I think that's consistent with our understanding of the words of institution, because mm-hmm. when we when too. we say this is my body, we we think we're thinking about J- Jesus' body broken on the cross, mm-hmm. and and so why wouldn't we think of you know eat my flesh in the same way that my, the flesh you know the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, why, why wouldn't we think of that in the same way? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and I found this interesting that this passage, now this, this is one commentary by one Roman Catholic, but even Johann Wilde says, look, no matter what happens in transubstantiation, there's still a spiritual aspect of this. Mm. You can't. And, and so I thought that was, uh, I thought that I, he, he, he provided a little bit of more kind of deeper theological thought. In other words, this is impacting how the Roman Catholics are ultimately going to think about this mm-hmm. as well, that there is this spiritual thing that's going on. Well, um, so and, in, you yeah. know, as I've said before, I think there are Catholic leaders, there are Catholic lay people who are who are deeply spiritual, and, and they will yeah. talk about the spirituality exactly. of, the, of the sacrament. Exactly. You know? And so I thought that was, I, I thought that was an important Peace. You know, he's he's obviously jumped into the discussion that is going on with the with the Reformation. And again, all of these reformers begin in the Roman Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. All of them do. All of them grew up taking or watching the sacrament being given the way that it was done. And so I think that's important to think about sure. and that that we want to pull them they're further apart, and we're further apart today in some ways. I mean, mm-hmm. most of us don't go worship in the Roman Catholic Church, and many of us never have set foot in it. Right. So this is this. They're all familiar, and so this it's more of a, a spectrum of ideas that are coming out before they get. They don't get. This is kind of interesting. We sometimes, as Reformation historians, 
um, consider the time really following 1580 as a period of what we call confessionalization. Mm -hmm. And that's when, like the formula of Concord, we get it with um, the Heidelberg Confession. Um, That's when things are being kind of codified, if you will, into Mm -hmm. the distinct um, traditions. So that's when... That's when we really get a definition of what Lutheranism is going to sure. look like. That's when we really get a definition of what Calvinism looks like. Um, although I say they, they push it too far when they go to Dort. But but we're starting to get, um, and, and of course, Presbyterians, that Westminster Confession. And, right. you know, we look at our book of confessions, right? You've got your two ancient confessions, and you've got your Reformation confessions, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that is this period of confessionalization. Right. And so, um, but before that... This is all kind of fluid. This is all part of a big discussion. And folks like Bootser and Musculus are, uh, are trying hard to get reconciliation between the different factions. And they're having all kinds of meetings. Can we bring the Roman Catholics in? Can we, what can we agree on? What can we agree on? Um, and they discover where they can agree and where they can't. Mm-hmm. And so once the confessionalization happens, that really that really kind of makes things rigid. And I think we're still pulling out of that today. Yeah. Um, you know, when we, when we start to say, well, they believe that and they believe that, and we're, we're starting to, for example, in the Presbyterian church, we have different denominations that we are in full confession with. Sure. So we're bringing, okay, we can agree on these things and these discussions are had, but think about how long that was. Yeah. Um, from this period of confessionalization to you know, really the late, 20th century, maybe this started where we kind of started to... The ecumenical movement. Yeah, yeah. the ecumenical movement. So that's kind of a... Anyway, keep that in mind when we're talking about these folks. Sure, sure. So the next, you know, I I talk specifically about the then Eucharist itself, which I've kind of already hit upon. Um, But whether or not this indeed is is Eucharistic language or not. And I I think... um, uh, Wolfgang Musculus, and remember, he's a, a reformed guy, but he's m- mostly in Germany, um, and of course, is one of the the guys trying to bring people together in agreement. But he claims that the language um, uh, from this makes its way to the Eucharist, um, but was never meant to be that that to be a transformation of the body and blood. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's it's. Um, it's really based on, um, it's really not about this real presence at all, that this is really uh, about faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that's right in line with our reform tradition as a sure. whole. Um, I didn't look at Luther as much, but Luther can't pull himself from real presence, even though, mm-hmm. and we talked about that last week, even though he he rejects transubstantiation. There's still this physicality he recognizes that is there. Um, and um, anyway, a couple pieces about whether it's Eucharistic or not. Zwingli claims, and I think this is interesting, and we've already kind of tapped on it. This can't be in his world um, Eucharistic language because it happens before. You know, he's mm-hmm. putting it in chronology. Yeah. It happens before, but he does say um, that perhaps it 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 looks for that in the, in the future, like the, the Lord's Supper comes after this and after this language is given. Except for the fact that there's no account of the Lord's Supper. And Their explanation for this is that the other gospelers did this, so that it was... John didn't have to. Already right? didn't have yeah, to. Yeah. I, that, I don't know where to go with that, but anyway. <laughs> I, I think that's too convenient. You, you know, know, we're in this we're in this place where people are harmonizing, so they don't right. see it as four separate gospels. Yeah. The, the final piece of this, and what comes in the biggest questions, is how is one saved? And... We've alluded to this already, but is it by eating that flesh or is it by faith? Um, we know where the reform, reformers come out um, on this, of course, and, and in particular our reformed tradition. Um, however, the, my favorite commentary, this was Echolampadius, who's like, look, faith is necessary for salvation. The food does nothing apart from faith. The flesh that we eat by faith is food for us. Um, the divine that it's in the flesh of Christ. And that is that divine of coming down from God through Christ mm-hmm. that we kind of, that we talked about. That's, I was so excited about that because I think Echolampadius is the one that sees that the most in his writing. Sure. Um, God, God is the living one and Jesus lives because of him exactly. and, and therefore can convey life to exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, 
Um, and this may be a question for our next segment, but as I was studying these reformers today, I think what strikes me today is the use of literalism and how many you know evangelicals today would deny true presence in, in their background or at least transubstantiation, and yet take other things so literally mm. from the text, you know, and they'll pull out these other pieces. And I think there's, I think that might be a good place for us to discuss sure. potentially is how do we make sense of these pieces that seemed so obvious to some groups that um, in our tradition make us say, hmm, but that's, that's too literal. I think they missed the point. Sure. I yeah. agree. Let's, let's, uh, let's take a break okay. and we'll come back. Sounds good. Hi, everybody. We are back, and I kind of left a question before our break about understanding the Bible and interpretation, and what does it mean to be literal? I mean, do you pull out things like eat my flesh and drink my blood, and is that an instruction for us, or are we missing the point? And I think, you know, we all know what side we come down on, but let's let's pull this apart a little bit to try to understand why we do pull this apart and why we would disagree with this approach. Yeah. Well, and you may, you, you may recall that uh, when I was teaching in the seminary in the 1990s, I taught, um, the, I taught the hermeneutics class. And, um, you know, unfortunately, um, there is this kind of naive biblicism that is uh, in the tradition of Bible reading in American Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, you just read it on the surface of things, and, you know, it's sort of, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and that's about it. That's about the depth of the right. way people approach the Bible. And there's no real appreciation for the fact that, you know, if you really read through the Bible, perhaps you have to do it more than one time, to see this, you see that there are high points and low points yes, in the Bible. Yes. I mean, there are places in the Bible where it's like, I am reading through this just to get through this, and this is not speaking to me at all. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, ten chapters in Joshua where where he's apportioning oh, the, the cities. I know to different exactly tribes. what you're talking about. Oh. Uh, it's painful, right? Right. And and um, you know, one of the one of the things that I've always found to be amusing is you know we have the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, but yet for years there was this fascination with the prayer of Jabez, which is just just kind of random thing that's that's in a genealogy in first chronicles chapters one through ten you just have a list of names yeah and it's you know it's intended probably after the exile to reestablish a genealogy so that people can trace which which uh, tribe they belong to and in the middle of this you have this prayer of jabez where he basically says oh bless me oh bless me and then bless me some more and that's the prayer that we're supposed to follow as an example for our lives right 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 (laughs) which to me was the ultimate Ultimate, uh, ultimate example of this kind of naive biblicism because, mm-hmm. you know, it treats every Bible verse as being on the same level with every other Bible right. verse. Right. And I'm sorry, you know, that leads to theological gobbledygook. It, <laughs> that's it does. a technical term. <laughs> it does. It does. And yet, I think that's how a lot of people come to it. And, um, and then, so it's easy to then find something that they can pull out of context or they just happen to read and they can put it then into their own purpose. And yeah. and we know that happens. Well, and you mentioned, you know, the inconsistency of, of evangelicals who say, well, you know, you, should eat, you, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. That's not meant to be literal, but then they'll take other things literally and how that's inconsistent. Yeah, that, kind yeah. of, that kind of naive biblicism or that kind of extreme literalism is what I would call it, has to be inconsistent. Because there are all kinds of things in the, in the Bible that you simply can't take literally, <laughs> and so you just you just kind of ignore those, right? Or you or you explain them away, but then they're right. then when it's when it it's basically based on theology. Right. So when it when it when it when it um, um, confirms my theological bias, then we take it literally, or right. or especially you especially see it in, in the ethical teachings of the Bible when it when it speaks to the sins of other people, you take it literally. Right. When it speaks to my sins, it's figurative. Exactly. <laughs> of course, here let me throw this in though. This is red letter Bible uh, stuff. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, right? I'm, these are words of Jesus. So these, I, I mean, if we're not taking it equal, then the words of Jesus have to be, and of course we've, I'm throwing that out to Alan to, to address, obviously, but uh, what's well, the problem and, here? And, and I, I will say in my, in my interpretive framework, um, um, Jesus' core teachings do have a preeminence of place in terms of how I interpret the Bible. Um, and yet, <laughs> you know, red-letter Bible is a modern invention. Um, none of these are the words of Jesus Technically speaking, technically speaking, they're words written by the gospel writers. Jesus, you know, didn't write any of these things. Right. We believe that they re- accurately reflect what Jesus said, but we don't know in some cases exactly what he said on certain occasions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, the whole red letter Bible thing to me is a farce. Yeah. And, and I, I yeah. you know, it, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. You know, Bible publishers are in the business of selling Bibles. And so if, if, if printing red, you know, things in red is going to sell, sell Bibles, it's a little bit like putting tabs on the book so that you can find your way around easy. That's, that's, but that's, that's the level of the depth of their, you know, extent of their, their thought about it for the most part. Right. There may be some who right. are doing it from a theological motivation, but, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a pragmatic. And as we saw here, even if you pull out this one literal concept, Jesus says something else at the end. Right. You know, then and, he's and like, it, "This is you know, this is not literal. This is this is faith." And so then you have to figure out what the whole thing means. Right. So my basic premise in teaching hermeneutics was: if you read the Bible through, if you let it, it will teach you how to interpret it more in line with with what it was intended to say. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is interpreting the Bible literally. You read the Bible in light of what it was intended to say. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't have access to, you know, we can't read the minds of the people who, who wrote these documents, but by comparison, by looking at the context, by looking at the historical situation, hopefully we can kind of begin to discern what's going on and begin to get some clues as to what, mm-hmm. why, why they're saying things that they're doing. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is you don't just take a verse out of context. Exactly, you know? exactly. You, you, you take, you know, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. You take it in the context not only of John chapter 6 as a whole, where Jesus himself right. sort of reinterprets that with several exactly. of the sayings. And, and as we've said before, perhaps the editors and authors of John's gospel intentionally put those words of institution that they had in their tradition in dialogue exactly. with the Bread of Life discourse so because they wanted to, yeah. we wanted to, wanted to, us to read those words in light of what Jesus was saying right. about the Bread of Life discourse and about you know responding to him in faith. Uh, but but more than that, you have to take it in light of John's John. gospel as a whole. Mm-hmm. And what is the perspective on faith in John's gospel as a whole? Mm-hmm. And and there's there's really no support in John's gospel as a whole for reading you you know those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life in the very literal way right. of you know this you know the, the 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 bread you eat is the flesh of Jesus and you're eating it and the eating itself gives you eternal life that that that's yeah. theology is not supported in the gospel of John. It's not. So if you read through, if you read through the whole chapter, you know, you just have to read through chapter six and you see some interpretive corrections there, right? Absolutely. But then if you read through the whole gospel of John, you find, oh, hey, yeah, this makes more sense. So Roman Catholic Church, which of course we kind of blame for the, the, the false kind of false interpretation, to be honest, is that perpetuated simply by... Is that by early interpretations that they just decided to support, or do they claim no? This is because this is history. This is part of the tradition, um, and therefore we we understand it better. It's almost like a re it's almost like a rewrite, if you will. Well, I would say it's kind of both. I mean, you know, my understanding of Catholic hermeneutics is that the church tradition is has more weight even than than what the Bible says, mm-hmm. and so and and you know, th- there's some there's some logic behind that because right, you know, of course. you know, you, you take a look at someone who's just who's who's an academic scholar of the Bible who has no faith and comes to it. 
and and you know uh, they're going to come out with a lot of maybe historical insights and they're going to come out with maybe some linguistic insights but they're not going to be able to really get the theology of what the what the bible's saying because they don't aren't coming at it with faith right and and, and so you know in the roman catholic tradition they're saying you have to you have to have this theological foundation of faith, which comes from the church tradition in their minds, right. to be able to do that. Now, we, we see that as something that's more spiritual in our context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, we saw last week from the second century, Ignatius began to, to sort of take an approach that was going to lead probably toward the idea of transubstantiation right, right. and reading these words very literally. You know, right. he called it the medicine of immortality. Right, you know? right, and, exactly. And so... Um, um, that really kind of, um, uh, you know, attributes right. to the eating of the sacrament itself right. saving significance. So, you know, I mean, they have a long tradition of interpreting it this way. But, um, you know, I would argue that they're kind of missing the point. You know, they're putting, I've often said, you know, another thing that happens with this is that we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Right. I, I agree. You know, and, and, I agree. and how can you read the whole of John 6 and come away from it and say it's about literally eating right. the bread and drinking the wine? One of the, one of the problems with this I saw practically, you know, when you think about the if theology, how it impacts how you respond and, and, and so practically, when I worked as a chaplain, and I th- is when, uh, you know, if I had a Roman Catholic patient, and they literally had to have a priest, all they did was run around and give the Eucharist to people because they had to, they had to have that. That was saving for them. And it was, it was, it was kind of hard to watch because these priests became so busy that their business became about sprinkling about the the Eucharist rather than actually sitting with the patients and 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 holding their hand, and it it it, it made me kind of sad um, because um, uh, it it felt. I mean, I'm sure it would be kind of impersonal. It's very impersonal. It's very impersonal, and so the rest of the chaplain staff ended up you know, visiting with the Roman Catholics as well. I guess if it brought them comfort, it's important, but I, I felt like the whole formation was wrong because they had so much fear. Oh, I'm alive today. Well, he come today. He's got to come today. I need to have it today. And it became this kind of urgency to make sure, like, they weren't confident in their faith. And, you know, we talk about that in our tradition. It's, sure. It's, yeah. Well, and... and Assurance. You know, unfortunately, for all of us, our theological premises are sort of so broad and deep that we may or may not be consciously aware of them. Well, very true. A- mm-hmm. And um, what I find is that, you know, trying to help people align their theological premises where they start out with the premises of the Bible is very difficult because oh, you sure. really have to read, you really have to have a macro level understanding right. of something like God is the living God. God is the one who gives life. Good point. And, and, and God is the God of grace, right. you know, and, and that love. is the fundamental, re- that is the fundamental revelation of who God is beginning right. with Moses in the cleft of the rock yeah. and echoing throughout the Bible, right. you know, and you have to have these kinds of ideas like Paul read, you know, um, the, the, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when it said in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Right. Right. You know, and, and, and this is kind of at the macro level mm-hmm. and, and, and that's, a much harder um, level of biblical interpretation because it means you really kind of have to read through the Bible probably several times before you begin to see these um, uh, contours, these theological contours that serve as the foundation for the biblical message. And and you you really can begin to then align your theological premises with with the contours of the biblical message. And I don't find a lot of people who are willing to put forth the effort of of actually... Uh, engaging in in that kind of Bible reading to be able to do that. I I agree. I agree. Of course, and I I do think foundations can be set early. And even though Mm -hmm. those seem simple, you know, if you grow up, God is love, Jesus loves me. And if those become the overwhelming 
lens by which you begin, which is what we teach our little ones. And then you have your confirmation students write their, maybe their first expression of faith out. Those provide, and, and again, those are going to be immature at 14 and 15, but they're starting to think about how their faith looks as a whole. And if, if these exercises are done, I do think that really sets people up well to begin that process. But... It- it gets interrupted, as we know, because there's such an attraction to a simplicity of a literal translation. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a begin. It's kind of like starting your education and not finishing your education. You know, it's kind sure. of like you just learn the rudiments, but you don't. So yeah, a lot yeah. of people. A lot of people. The last time they were in a Christian education class was in confirmation. Exactly, yeah. and and that's the problem with it. Yeah. Exactly, and that the outside voices of literalism come, and then what do we start to do? Well, and we start to honestly, honestly, one of the things I've been surprised at is that children who have been raised in a Presbyterian church, they've they've heard this message of grace and love mm-hmm. throughout um, as the premise, as a theological premise, right. They come to confirmation, and their premise is sin. Oh, that's true. That yeah, right, right. Because that is such that has been. I mean, for centuries, the the premise of Christian theology has been sin. That has been the starting place, and so you know, I I, I don't I don't correct them. I don't I don't you know. Uh, try to um, make them embrace a more a more a more of a view of grace. I do present grace, obviously, mm-hmm. very strongly, and we work through. We work with. I work with the study catechism and with the brief conf- brief statement of faith, which are very wonderful statements. Right. They all have wonderful right. statements about who God is. But it still comes in there that theology of sin that uh, that where's that, that coming from, Alan? I think it comes. I think it comes from parents. I think it comes from just the generational ideas. I, I think that that's have just down. built up for centuries that that this is the Christian faith that we have sinned and Jesus died for our sins and Jesus died so that we don't have yeah. to be punished for our sins or we don't have to go to hell, and that has just been. That's just been a generational thing. Yeah. That 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 just they kind of absorb almost maybe from their parents or from their family. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Uh, that's an uh, that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, friends. I'm pro- I'm processing that a little bit because I think that um, you know I, I when I've worked with young people, a lot of times they don't feel they're good enough to be in the church, mm-hmm. despite what we despite that we promise that there's nothing they can do to separate them from the love of God, they still don't feel good enough. And what, what dynamic has happened there? Mm -hmm. Why does that, why does that ring so true with them? I think we're swimming upstream, basically. You know, even though we're 500 years into the Reformation, which which tried to shift the terms of the premises to grace, we're still dealing with that uh, with that um, task mm-hmm. of helping people to reorient their lives toward the grace yeah. of God, as opposed to this notion right. of sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's really a good point. Hmm. Yeah, and I think to me, I think taking this chapter. And and really looking at it as a whole, you know, as I said, there's a there's a marvelous Christology here. You know, yes, Jesus yes. is the one who feeds the five thousand. Jesus is the one who reveals himself in the walking of the water as the I am. Jesus is the one who is the bread that comes from heaven that gives life to the world. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the one who gives his flesh in dying for us. You know, so that we may have life. Jesus is the one who is going to be lifted up not only on the cross but also in the resurrection mm-hmm. that we might have life. And Jesus is the one who words give us life as well as he sends the spirit to give us life and mm-hmm. so we have this yeah this whole just um this whole cloth of christology that's that's encapsulated in this one chapter yeah. and it's all yeah. about giving life from from incarnation to resurrection and ascension and the giving of the spirit it's all about god's uh work of giving life yeah. to us yeah yeah well I see a great sermon series with this, and I see um, a wonderful discourse on life. And so, in a way, uh, it's it's pretty awesome, actually, when you think about it in the in, in the in the large scheme of the Bible. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.